Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen here on the 19th of September. By the sound of my voice, you can probably tell that I am not Carmen LeBurge. She is away at a speaking engagement in Houston, Texas, and thoughts and prayers go with her. She's talking about what it means to bring the truth into conversations with just about everybody we meet. So enjoy what she's doing there, and enjoy being with you back in studio here again, Paul Perot. Well, good morning. Uh, he's part of the morning show. It covers some of the headlines of the day, and you know, you and I chat quite a bit about the different news that does happen, and uh, and there's a lot of news items here. And one of the things that really struck me in this last week is that uh, I can really start spinning about the news and, and some of the different headlines and just start feeling that the world is on fire mm-hmm. uh, from time to time. And sometimes we come in and there's a lot of headlines, and that is the case yeah. today. And yeah. Ben Johnson from Acton Institute is going to join us here in just a minute, and we're going to cover some of those headlines. But I was in Scotland with my family last week uh, visiting some friends. We had lived there overseas for a while, and, and there's something really heartening about being with believers in other countries. You start mm-hmm. realizing you're part of a bigger kingdom than anything that's going on in a specific continent, a specific country. And those headlines are all important, but it really began to anchor myself again just to worship and being in a church with other believers. And during the worship service, we sang this old hymn that I remember from growing up, and and, the, and it was something about uh, blessed assurance— Jesus is mine. Oh what, a, yeah, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And as a kid, I would have never understood that phrase, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, what it meant. But as I stood there in that, in that church service on that Sunday, it was a passage from 2 Corinthians that came to mind, uh, verse chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that it's God who has established both us and you and our Christ. He anointed us and he placed his seal on us and the, sp- uh, the, the spirit in our hearts as a pledge of what is to come. And, mm-hmm. and I, then from there, I was able to finally understand what this old line said about a foretaste of glory divine, that we really aren't at the end of the day meant for this world. We need no. to walk in this world and bear witness in this world. And we need to call the world in a, in a place of reconciliation back to the God who loves us. And as we do that and decide to commit our lives and follow Jesus, we get this incredible gift of a spirit that is then the foretaste of the glory that is which to come that gives us a sense of shalom and peace and anchoring as we walk out this life. Okay, now I just recently got married. Yes, you did. But when I proposed to Jessica and gave her the ring, I mean, it's a little foretaste. She knows what's coming. I made a promise. I'm going to marry you. And that ring, she, I mean, she was always just looking at it. She's happy about what it meant. Um, We have that with what Jesus has done and what the, the spirit in us, it's just a foretaste. The, it, the big stuff is still to come. Yeah, that's so well said. And that calls to mind when Jesus says that, I, you, uh, lo, I go and prepare a place for mm-hmm. you. And that is a place, and that's a reference to the idea of the bridegroom who is preparing our final place, as you referenced in your own wedding situation, yeah. that there is this betrothal period that we live in right now as we pull forward. So as we cover the headlines of the day here in just a moment, and welcome Ben after the break, uh, just as you're listening this morning, wherever you're going, off to work, off to school, whatever's happening in your life, I, I do hope that there's a place of encouragement in that to recognize that, yes, there is realities in this world with which we have to deal. But I do hope you all have a foretaste of that glory divine. 
This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen has a well-deserved break and a speaking engagement in Houston, Texas. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in. This morning, good to be back in the chair, good to be back with all of you listening in the various areas that the Faith Radio Broadcast Network goes to as well as streaming through the app. Uh, just even overseas last week, it was delightful to be streaming Faith Radio through the app over there. It came in clear as a bell uh, overseas, Paul, and it was fun to listen to the share event. Thanks cool. for all the work you did on that. And, You're welcome. And just thinking of all of you listeners, really appreciate uh, all of the support that you've given Faith Radio, not just here recently in the last week, but over the years too. Uh, Paul and I were talking before the show just about the importance of participating in God's ever-unfolding kingdom in the time and season of our lives. And I know another person who does that is our good friend Ben Johnson, who joins us each week to cover so many of the different headlines, not just in our country, but around the world. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you as well. I've got a whole list of topics to cover. We get our whole uh, first hour together on this. And boy, I'm not sure where to even throw the dart at the dartboard about where to start. But I know one thing that uh, certainly was being covered globally when I was overseas last week was sort of the, I don't want to use the term fake news because it just had, there's so much heat around that kind of term, but certainly what the New York Times did last week in terms of publishing a story about Justice Kavanaugh was some pretty uncooperated allegations about another person supposedly coming forward and that he did something inappropriate with in the past. Uh, there was a, quite a firestorm that ignited in that one. So tell us about what happened here and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, it was a, a big story that's about a forthcoming book called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh by uh, Robin Pogrebin and uh, Kate Kelly, both of whom are reporters for the New York Times. Now, of course, everybody remembers the firestorm almost exactly a year ago when Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed that it looked like the uh, confirmation hearings were at their end. Uh, everything had come to its terminus. And then suddenly an allegation came forth first from Christine Blasey Ford uh, about something that had happened when he was 17 years old. She named four witnesses who were at a party in the summer of 1982. None of the uh, eyewitnesses corroborated her story. Then there was a second allegation from a woman named Deborah Ramirez that uh, his freshman year in Yale, uh, freshman or sophomore year, he had uh, exposed himself to her at a party and she had inadvertently uh, touched him inappropriately. And uh, she named three witnesses. None of those witnesses came forward to corroborate. Uh, none of them were able to corroborate the story either. Keeping track, that's seven witnesses for Kavanaugh, zero for the prosecution. Uh, it looked as though this story had been behind us. Suddenly, this new book came out by uh, Pogrebin and Kelly, where um, uh, uh, they decided that uh, they mentioned a new allegation to come forward from a man named Max Steyer. Steyer, who uh, went to Yale with Kavanaugh, said that uh, during his uh, freshman year there, he had heard of a party where uh, Kavanaugh had done something similar. He had exposed himself and uh, friends had caused someone to touch him inappropriately. Now, a few things were left out of the story which is, number one, that the woman in question refused to be interviewed for the story, and she has absolutely no memory of this whatsoever. Second of all, there are no corroborating witnesses. So it's a secondhand hearsay account, uh, which even the alleged victim doesn't remember. Uh, so even the, the victim in question, unlike Blasey Ford or Ramirez, even the victim does not corroborate the story that is being told in her name. Uh, the other thing that got left out of the story... Uh, is that uh, the allegations come from Max Steyer. The Times doesn't mention that Steyer 
was one of the lawyers who defended Bill Clinton during his impeachment trial, which, of course, ironically enough, stemmed about whether Bill Clinton perjured himself during a lawsuit that he inappropriately exposed himself to a, a woman against her will, Paula Jones. One of the attorneys uh, who worked for him uh, and defended him was Max Steyer. One of the attorneys who worked for Ken Starr and helped write the Starr Report was a young man named Brett Kavanaugh. So when you add that context, first of all, it's a very thinly sourced story that never would have made it into print uh, in any reputable publication, much less the New York Times of old. And second of all, you have um, what looks very much in that context, not so much like an, an allegation, but it looks like political revenge from the Clinton machine. Yeah, and what's so tricky about this, Ben, is uh, when we consider the state of journalism in our country, whether that journalism is coming from more right-leaning organizations or left-leaning organizations, I think it speaks to the idea that it seems like we've undergone a shift in journalistic integrity to some extent where journalists are more about shaping public perception and power than it is about simply reporting the news. And I know I was at an event uh, a little while ago in which a reporter from one of the major news organizations was there and talked about the reason why they wanted to get into the news was they wanted to have the opportunity to actually shape the social landscape of our country. And this seems to be one of those situations just simply by what sort of facts you include or facts you don't include or what you emphasize or what you don't emphasize the book that was written had a lot of different angles and a lot of different stories within it. But the New York Times picking this story, it would clearly seem to be another case of shaping public perception. But uh, that's also true of many of the conservative outlets in our country. Well, it's definitely true on both sides of the story. But uh, when it comes to the New York Times, you know, to, to paraphrase Marco Rubio, uh, my, you know, uh, David French wrote a story for the, New, for the uh, National Review saying the New York Times still doesn't understand what it did. You know, to paraphrase Marco Rubio, let's dispel once and for all this fiction that the New York Times doesn't know what it did. It knows exactly what it did. <laughs> right. the, the, uh, there, there's no question. There were a lot of blockbuster allegations in here, one of which is that uh, Christine Blasey Ford named one person that she particularly thought would uh, corroborate her account, a woman named Leland Kaiser. Leland Kaiser is married to Bob Beckel. Uh, a lot of people might know him from Fox News, uh, and he seems like this lovable curmudgeon, which he more or less is today. But uh, back in the 1980s and 90s, he was a fire-breathing left-wing Democrat uh, uh, who, uh, among other things, was the one who came up with the strategy to try and get members of the Electoral College to vote for Al Gore instead of George W. Bush after the election in 2000. So highly partisan person. Leland Kaiser uh, told, the, uh, told the investigators that not only did she not corroborate uh, Ford's story, but she didn't think it made any sense, that she, no she didn't remember any party of the sort, and that she had been blackmailed if she didn't come forward, that they were going to start saying that she was a drug addict. Uh, rather than highlight that because it's exculpatory toward Kavanaugh, they came forward with this political allegation that has absolutely nothing to corroborate itself. And then uh, uh, the two reporters say that it corroborates or lends uh, some credence to claims made by Deborah Ramirez, which were similar. So that's that's what's happening here. And And to your point, when I was in journalism school 25 years ago, uh, give or take, uh, a lot of the people that I was in there with I wanted to go in order to get to the bottom. I, I, I thought that I was going to be a muckraking reporter and an exposed uh, truth and, and so on. Everyone that I was with said, I'm here to change the world. 
and they had an agenda that they wanted to impose upon the reporting. So you're looking at that generation, at least one full generation that has uh, come about with that point of view, rather than simply uh, calling balls and strikes. They want to shape the way that you look at things. Yeah. One more point on this, Ben, too, as you're talking, I was thinking that the other day I was driving from Chicago to Minnesota, I had about a six hour drive ahead of me. And I realized that in light of what's happening within the news and, and the bias that does persist and exist and, and wanting to shape some public perception, I, I did listen to some news organization for about three hours straight. And it called to mind what Bruce Ashford, who often contributes to this show, talks about whether we're discipled by news organizations or whether we're discipled by the kingdom. And, and I realize it's just even in three hours, and even though I'm aware of the fact that there is a bias in any sort of news outlet, that I was being impacted in the way that I thought about the world and what I cared about. There is passions, interests, desires. There is value shifting. There's all sorts of things happening just in three hours of news. And, and by contrast, I can't remember the last time maybe I listened to three hours of a podcast or something that was directly devoted to the kingdom. And so uh, just in a minute or so here before we take a break, there, there really is a discipleship dimension here in terms of what we think about in this world when we listen to so much of the news if we're not aware of it. Look, the book of Romans says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's why it's so important that we that we have a proper mental diet in order to be very careful what things we think on. And whatsoever things are good or pure or holy, those are the things that we should feed into our minds. That's why I think what Faith Radio uh, does is so important, because you're helping shape that. You're giving people uh, tidbits of the kingdom in order to shape the way that they think, the way that they look. And I think when they listen to it, they'll find themselves inspired. They find themselves closer to God, and and they realize their place in the kingdom, whereas uh, otherwise they might feel completely depressed uh, listening to the headlines around them Mm -hmm. as the world falls apart. Absolutely. That's Ben Johnson of the Acton Institute. Does such a great job talking articulately about so many of the global headlines. And Ben, we'll take a short break and we come back. Let's change the conversation over to some pretty interesting headlines where the EU, when faced with the prospect of the United Kingdom leaving at some time in the next weeks, uh, six weeks or so, is advocating for a different kind of empire. And I have to say, this sort of called to mind for me a little bit uh, of, of left behind <laughs> and, and some of what we see in that story. So I got to ask you about that next year on Mornings with Carmen. About 20 minutes, uh, 21 minutes past the top of the hour here. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, who's away on a speaking engagement today and tomorrow. Great to be back. Great to be back with uh, Ben Johnson as well as we cover some of the headlines that are happening around our country and around our world. And Ben, uh, I grew up in an era of Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth in which we sort of tried to apply what we perceive to be the prophecies of Revelation to end times events. We started, you know, often we'd think, well, you know, maybe this uh, creature that looks like a locust with long hair, it might be indicative somehow of an Apache helicopter, nuclear war, all of these sorts of things. And and uh, then that took us into the Left Behind era as well, maybe 15, 20 years ago, in which uh, one of the things that was central to that series is the idea that after a period of profound instability from the rapture, we see sort of this global leader arise that's going to unite the world. And following some of the events out of the European Union, I mean, I think we're pretty far away from that idea, whether something like that's actually going to happen. But I was pretty compelled by what some of the European leaders are saying right now, that there really needs to be a unity in an empire form to deal with so many of the other empires that are happening in our world, whether it be China or India. So tell us a bit about what's happening there and, and what some of the concerns are that are that's prompting this kind of conversation. Yeah, uh, this all came about over the weekend where uh, a man who works uh, for the European Union, he was their chief negotiator on Brexit. So he's trying to stop the European Union from leaving or leaving on good terms. His name is Giver Hofstadt. Uh, it looks as though his name is Guy for, for us, but in, in Europe they would pronounce it Guy Verhofstadt. 
he was speaking to the party conference of the Liberal Democrats, the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, which which is not a Liberal Democrat in our sense. It's a different political party in the UK, but they are incredibly pro-European Union. Giver Hofstadt said uh, something that he said many times over the years and other EU officials have said as well. He said the world order of tomorrow, this is a quotation, the world order of tomorrow is not a world order based on nation states or countries. It's a world order that is based on empires. Then he cites China and India and the United States, by the way, as an empire and Russia uh, as his idea of four empires that are going to uh, rule the world. And he says, the world of tomorrow is a world of empires in which we Europeans and you British can only defend your interests, your way of life, by doing it together in a European framework and a European Union. So he's saying that the rest of the world is breaking into empires. And so if we want to defend European values, then we have to do so by uh, subsuming all of Europe into a political union, uh, which is headed in Brussels and led by international uh, figures, many of whom are not uh, elected and certainly are not representative of the people who cast their ballots. And with that, uh, part of it was interesting, again, being over there last week because we were sort of at ground zero of the Brexit conversations. And and uh, some of the dimensions of it that I don't know that I understood as fully was the idea that part of the rationale and the reason to develop the European Union in the first place was because there has been such a long history of bloodshed in Europe between countries. I mean, it's not that long ago that Germany and Italy and were at war with France and England. And so to bring these countries together, uh, there's, a, there's a strength that's perceived in that. But now we're in a situation where in about six weeks or so, it sure looks like the United Kingdom is going to do a hard Brexit. They're going to leave Europe potentially. And if they succeed in all in that, that uh, some of the thinking is, is that could actually lead to the fall of the European Union, because if they can be prosperous post-Brexit, then what would stop another country from doing that? So these are really tense times in that section of the world, aren't they? They really are. What uh, Boris Johnson has said, uh, the, the United Kingdom is going to leave the European Union on October 31st, regardless. Uh, they asked if he would extend it. He said, I would rather be dead in a ditch <laughs> yeah. than to extend it. So uh, he has very much staked his his uh, premiership, his prime minister tenure on this issue, uh, which has been a defining one for him since 2016. Now, on the other hand, you have others who have done everything they can in terms of uh, the parliamentary pro-Remain majority to try and box him in to keep him from leaving. So there's going to be a constitutional crisis likely within six weeks, uh, quite candidly. If it doesn't result in a general election, uh, then either there's going to be a, a, a constitutional crisis or uh, Boris Johnson could be the shortest lived premier in the history of the United Kingdom, depending on how things work out. But you have this example where the United Kingdom uh, has wanted to lower its taxes. It's, want, it's wanted less regulation. When you have Brussels, it's imposing a one size fits all uh, model on 27 separate nations, all of them at different levels of economic development, all of them with their own cultures and their own markets. And it doesn't make sense for uh, one central authority to raise everyone to a certain standard when those standards may not apply. Uh, second of all, these these regulations that they issue go on for tens of thousands of pages and they cover virtually everything. Boris Johnson made a name as a journalist at uh, The Telegraph for uh, exposing some of the extreme rules uh, he didn't always get the exact content right, but he was right that the rules are uh, beyond uh, understanding. There are rules for uh, the various collection of, uh, of pig fertilization. If you're going to fertilize a pig through artificial insemination, the, the precise rules of how that is done and every step of the way is regulated by Brussels, for example. So uh, the idea that you could leave that uh, imperial mindset and flourish is something that they are very much keen to uh, try and dismiss. 
Yeah, it's going to be, uh, we were talking with our kids over some ice cream there just about what the Brexit situation is about. We said, you know, in your lifetime at about 10, 11, 12 years old, this might be one of the most significant geopolitical events that you run into just in terms of how it might reshape the world order. So we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on that in the six weeks to come. Ben, we're going to head to a bottom of the hour break here. When we come back for the second half of our time together, I'd love to get in a little closer to home with some of the political conversation of the Democratic left and the rise of Elizabeth Warren and some of the taxation policies that she is promoting as well. So lots more to come here next with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute on Mornings with Carmen. It's about halfway past the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LaBerge here today. She's away on a speaking engagement, and we've been talking with Ben Johnson this morning about the different headlines of the day. And, Ben, you know, we started at the top of this show with uh, the quote from Corinthians about getting a deposit of the Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance and that beautiful hymn of a foretaste of glory divine. And that's something, right, when we begin to follow Jesus in our lives, you sort of get this gift that begins to kind of pull you through and grow stronger every day that you walk in this life. And I know for me, as I've gotten older each year, as we all do, that promise of that glory divine to come really is what sustains us in this life, doesn't it? It truly does. You know, heaven really begins here on earth. We think that it's something that we'll experience once we leave this kingdom, but in fact, we're part of the church today. We're united with everyone in the body of Christ, and we have that promise of the Spirit, that pledge of inheritance living within us even now, and we can experience that joy of Christ every day as we walk in the Spirit. Well, Ben, in about five minutes, we'll come back to some of the headlines. And during that time in the break, i got a challenge for you is that I'd love for you to look uh, back into an old hymn at maybe a line of an old hymn that wasn't so meaningful perhaps as a kid, but certainly is far more meaningful today and see what you come up with here. So more to come on Mornings with Carmen with Ben Johnson as we cover the headlines of the day. If there were an Olympic event for procrastination, I would definitely get the gold medal. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Okay, I was exaggerating a bit about the gold medal, but some days it seems like I'm always running behind. Like the popular saying goes, if it weren't for the last minute, I wouldn't get anything done. You know, all of us procrastinate. It's just human nature. But it can become a problem if it goes too far. One thing you shouldn't delay too long is planning your financial future. For example, if you want to retire comfortably, put some money away each month. Or if you want to send your kids to college, start planning sooner rather than later. Even how much you want to give to others can be planned. So don't procrastinate. Create a financial strategy soon. With a solid plan and God's help, you can live a life of contentment, confidence, and generosity. This is Callie Breeze with Thrivent. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, who's away on a speaking engagement today and tomorrow. And we've been talking with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, as we do on Thursday mornings, to cover the various headlines of the day. And Ben, before the break, I issued a challenge to you to come up with uh, perhaps a hymn of some sort that had a line to it that's become more meaningful in your life. And before we go to you on that, uh, I encourage you listeners to do the same. We got a text from Jane uh, sending in some lines uh, from old hymns, including What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a great song that is. And if you want to be included in that part of the conversation, go ahead and text the studio at any time at 877-933-2484 with maybe an old hymn that still has significant meaning in your life today. And so, Ben, back to you now. Did you have a chance to figure something out in the last five minutes? 
Well, I thought about it, and what I have to do is give a couple of major confessions on the air. Uh, <laughs> one of which is I was an absolutely terrible child. Uh, I didn't sing when I was in church, uh, not not so much as a public service as, as it would be today, but uh, as as an act of defiance. I, I get it, I, yep. uh, I did not want to be in church. Uh, I loved Jesus, but I hated going to church. It was an imposition. Ultimately, uh, uh, just to give a very brief version of the testimony, ultimately my defiance led me into atheism. Some evangelical friends brought me back. Glory to God. Hmm. Uh, And part of that was Christian radio. So I I owe my soul in part to some of the programming on various Christian radio programs. Now, by the time I came back and was paying attention to what I was singing, uh, I was an adult and I more or less understood it. But what I picked out was actually a line that I didn't understand when I was young, uh, which is from the Nicene Creed. We used to say the Creed uh, every week yep. in my church. And in the Creed, it says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Uh, he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. And what I always thought that meant was, well, the Bible says that he rose the third day. That's, that's what it means. The Bible says that Jesus rose on the third day, the first day of the week, when the, very early in the morning, when the women disciples came to the tomb and saw that it was the stone had been rolled away, the angel was standing there, and it's just telling us that what we're proclaiming is in the gospel. That's not what it means, uh, as it turns out. I, un- I think that way because I speak English. If mm. I spoke Greek, I would know that what they were saying is Jesus rose in accordance with the scriptures, and the scriptures are the Old Testament scriptures. What, what the creed was saying is Jesus Christ was predicted and prophesied to rise from the dead, and he kept all of the prophecies, just as he kept more than 400 messianic prophecies during his life. His resurrection was one of the prophecies that shows that Jesus Christ is the unique figure who brings salvation to all of mankind. I never understood that when I was a kid mm. in any sense. I love that, Ben. And what that, you know, when you when you reference that uh, line and talking about how it is in accordance with the scriptures, it again just reminds me of how long and uh, it's since the beginning of time that this beautiful story of God's redemptive kingdom has been going on and Jesus fulfilled so much of, of that messianic promise, all of it actually in that time. And we're still experiencing that today. So appreciate that, uh, bringing that up. And if you're listening again this morning, you can hit uh, Peter at MyFaithRadio.com. You can text the studio at 877-933-2484 with some lines of hymns that are just sort of right with meaning. And Ben, we've been covering quite a few of the headlines, and of course, uh, it's hard to believe that we're actually closer to the next election in the United States than we are far away from the previous election. I can't believe we're only 14 months or so away from this, and uh, certainly some things are winnowing down in the Democratic Party, and we're experiencing pretty much the rise of what seems to be Elizabeth Warren. I know that Joe Biden tends to be leading in the polls, but he doesn't seem to have the same level of enthusiasm underneath uh, his platform that Elizabeth Warren does. So give us a sense of what's happening there, and specifically about what Warren's tax policies are that would have a pretty dramatic impact across the board in the United States. They would. Elizabeth Warren is uh, probably the most progressive electable Democrat. Uh, You know, you have Bernie Sanders, who is a Democratic Socialist. It would be hard for me to see him uh, putting together the electoral coalition that you would need in order to win the Electoral College. Elizabeth Warren theoretically could, uh, even though she's virtually as as, uh, far left on on certain issues as he is. And she's got several uh, plans that are going forward. One of them is a new wealth tax, which is something that the United States has never had in its 250 or 200-plus-year history. We didn't have an income tax until 1913, and that had to be brought in through constitutional amendment. A wealth tax is if the government says that you possess a certain amount of wealth above $50 million, then you would pay 2% of your wealth every year. 
If you have a billion dollars in wealth, according to the government, then you'd pay 3% every year. Now, the issue is, first of all, that's double taxation. You already paid on the income when you earned it. So what they're really taxing is the fact that you saved money. Second of all, the government gets to determine what your fortune is, so there's room for cronyism and, and some uh, dubious accounting. But uh, third of all, those might not be what we call liquid assets. It might not be cash that you've got or money in the bank. It could be that you own a rare painting or you own a, a house or something like that. And so you would theoretically have to sell your house or, or some sort of asset in order to pay this tax. Uh, in There have been several countries that have done this. In 1990, there were 12 countries around the world, particularly in Europe, that had wealth taxes. Today, there are three. What they found was that people fled their country when you had this wealth tax. And so the, the wealthiest people just left and uh, it eroded their tax base. It decreased investment. It, it uh, hindered their economy. And uh, it, it was not uh, it actually cost them more money than they got from it. So I think we could learn a lot from the experience of nations like France, which just converted their uh, ISF in, from a wealth tax into a different kind of tax, uh, or the fact that uh, 42,000 millionaires left France uh, over a 12 year period in order to avoid that. Uh, second of all, she wants to change Social Security. Uh, she wants to increase checks by $200 a month. That's for retirees, uh, as well as people on uh, disability. But uh, in order to do that, you would raise what's called the max tax, uh, which is that you only contribute in Social Security up to $250,000. Uh, she would just blow that out of the water. She would also impose a new tax on top of that uh, of about 7.4%. Uh, and then the employers would have to pay 7.4% uh, above that if you make more than $250,000. Uh, and then uh, people who uh, joint filers who make $400,000 would also have to pay about seven times what they're paying on investment income. So it would go from 3% to 15. Uh, you're, you're talking about a, a 5% uh, uh, increase in the, uh, in the terms of how much tax they would pay on investment to give people a $200 a month boost on Social Security. Let's not forget one other thing, which is actually older people, she's working on an outdated uh, paradigm, which is older people actually have more wealth than younger people by a factor of about seven. Uh, Charles Schwab uh, and the Federal Reserve put out, a, the Federal Reserve put out a, a study just recently. People under the age of, uh, under the age of uh, 35 have about $75,000 of wealth. People over the age of 75 have more than a million dollars worth of wealth which makes sense if you think about it. You spend your life working, you save, you accumulate goods as you go on. And that usually reaches its peak when you retire, then you live off your savings. So it makes a lot of sense, but really the people she's benefiting are the wealthiest people in, in uh, the country as it stands. Well, and to your point, when people begin to flee uh, restrictive financial policies in places like France, we see that actually within the United States, where New York is uh, experiencing quite a bit of flight from that uh, state because there's such high taxation, California, the same sort of thing. And so these tax policies are going to have an impact on one way or another if she does come out with them. I know that she was on the Stephen Colbert Late Show the other night, too, and, and was uh, avoiding a question about whether taxes will be raised on the middle class, uh, which they clearly will in her plan. And that brings up a point, whether you're for or against sort of higher taxes, and, and there's merits I can see on all sides of the conversation. But Paul Perot clued me into 
this concept or this idea called the Overton window in which we become more and more hardened in our positions in, in different kinds of ways. And in the polarization of our country that we have right now, where there is increasing anger, increasing turmoil, I would love for you after a short break here in just a moment to come back and tell us a little bit about what this Overton window is and how it can help explain some of the significant tension that seems to be increasing in our country along political lines. So more to come here with Ben Johnson next on Mornings with Carmen. about 12 minutes before the top of the hour. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and tomorrow. And we've been talking throughout the morning about different songs that have been in the church for a very long period of time, sometimes generations, sometimes centuries, that have some lines that maybe we've forgotten a bit about here and there, but are still meaningful in our journey moving forward. We got a text from Deborah texting in on the great song, It Is Well, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast caused me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And Paul Perot, Ben Johnson, uh, that song was written by a person who experienced some pretty significant loss in their life. Uh, Spafford, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and managed to still find a place of some kind of peace that transcended and passed understanding. And, and Paul, that's one of those things that uh, is really one of the great promises of the deposit we experience from the Spirit in our lives, that there really is an otherworldly peace that's in the midst of all of these crazy circumstances in our world. Exactly. I mean, this is not the sum total of anything right now. I mean, th- our future is secure. There's something greater coming, even though this world can really be hard. Yeah, and it's that kind of thing, Ben Johnson, that allows us to bear witness in the midst of the turmoil. We can continue to shine a light, and I appreciate the work that you do just in thinking through the news in a in a critical and a fair kind of way to be able to talk about some of these different things and include a kingdom perspective in the midst of them. And we've been talking <clears throat> a bit about the upcoming election, at least a year from now, as the Democratic Party seems to be identifying their primary candidates, and Elizabeth Warren is certainly emerging as one of the top contenders, and her <clears throat> taxation policy is quite a bit different than the current taxation policy and it brought to mind a concept that Paul Perot brought up earlier this morning called the Overton Window. As of an hour ago, I had never heard of the Overton Window, and now I know a bit more about it. But tell I, us a bit about what it is. I tell you, Ben, I have to keep educating this guy, just so you know. That's what, yeah. <clears throat> See, because having a doctorate, you're only smart in, like, one thing. The rest yeah. of life, rest of life is fair game. <laughs> what, what is it? They say uh, the definition of someone who has a Ph.D. is someone who knows more and more about less and less. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that, that's the mantra on my steering wheel. I, I quote that on the way into work. Yeah. So uh, one of the ways that the Overton window has changed is about elections, because now elections never end. Uh, It used to be that elections came to an end on election day, but now they go on. uh, They start two years early and then impeachment efforts go on until the next election begins. So that's the Overton window that's changed. At Overton window was uh, it's a theory come up that uh, was invented by a man named Joseph Overton, who ranked ideas on the scale of more freedom versus less freedom. And he said that if an idea is going to be successful, it has to fall within a certain range of acceptable opinion. So uh, if you believe that um, if if someone were to uh, come forward and propose something, say uh, a a 2% tax increase, that certainly is within the 45-yard line of of American discourse, or a 2% tax cut. That's something that we're in favor of that uh, we could talk about. If you talk about radical uh, democratic socialism, that's an idea or a concept that's been outside of the American practice and uh, understanding of its of itself for a very long time. And what's happening gradually is the Overton window is creeping further and further towards socialism. Uh, it's been mainstreamed. The, the ideas and concepts have gone from being radical and unthinkable to becoming uh, acceptable. Uh, and uh, there, there are various ideas that an idea goes through a continuum or a hierarchy where it goes from being unthinkable to being common sense. Uh, and so it's gone from, uh, at one point, 
Democrats and, and uh, people who would consider themselves extremely liberal wanted nothing to do with socialism and, and would say so. Today, it's uh, it's something that uh, 45% of young people have a favorable uh, opinion of. They have a more favorable opinion of socialism than they do of capitalism. So the Overton window is moving far to the left, or, or we might say, uh, in in the terms of uh, Ronald Reagan his famous speech, it's moving uh, rather than moving up toward the pinnacle of freedom, it's moving down toward the uh, government enslavement. And what's interesting about that concept of the Overton window when we apply it to a realm outside of politics, and certainly we're going to be watching that develop here in the next 14, 15 months, is that it also applies, I think, to our spiritual journey in a wide variety of ways. And in, in, in matters of sexuality, for example, is uh, when you talk about what was once sort of shocking and really outside the norm and how it slowly becomes just part of the mainstream reality. We certainly see that in the education system and how our kids are being taught about gender and sexuality these days. And I remember, Ben, back when the TV show Friends started in 1994, and these uh, characters, Monica and Joey Chandler, you know, they, they talked about sexuality on these programs in ways that were been well outside the normal window of talking about it. We were shocked and we were stunned and we couldn't believe these things were being said live on TV. And Friends now would be entirely tame compared to some of the shows that are streaming on Netflix these days, like maybe Crown or Game of Thrones, which just ended, in terms of the contents that's there. So there really is this sort of dynamic that takes place, isn't there, where what becomes what was once shocking becomes sort of normal, and we lose a little bit of the discernment in that, and we, and we forget kind of what we're meant for as we sort of just slowly become normalized in so much of how we think. Well, friends would be tame compared to sexuality education in a lot of public schools. <laughs> that's really true. <laughs> Uh, much of which, by the way, is, is provided by Planned Parenthood. But uh, that's that's certainly true that uh, it's the old phrase, defining deviancy downward, where uh, things that had been unthinkable through continual mention have, have become mainstreamed. And, of course, uh, the ubiquity of online pornography has made uh, practices that had been considered uh, deviant beyond uh, all practice now more or less part of the mainstream conversation for every young man, every young woman uh, who is on a college campus or in dating life. So... Uh, it's it's uh, uh, something that we very much have to be concerned about, uh, and that's why, uh, just to, to bring us, I guess, maybe full circle, that we have to be very careful about what we put into our mind, into our eyes, into our ears, and to feast on such things as Scripture, to feast on these old hymns that have meaning to us now, meaning that we can uncover that maybe we didn't understand when we were younger, to give ourselves spiritual food and that continually give ourselves to prayer and our relationship with Jesus Christ, to experience the love that he has for us, so that when we see an imitation, uh, we, will, we will naturally reject the imitation and hold on to true love. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important admonition and encouragement and invitation, Ben. And again, I'll circle back to just that drive that I had for six hours from Chicago to Minneapolis. In terms of what my heart, what my mind, what my, my soul was feasting on, I was sort of thinking, how can I just get through this drive and listen to something somewhat entertaining? And it turned out, again, to be news programming, following the news as we do. And, and you just realize you kind of just get a little bit dead to the things that matter. And it, it brings that to mind that beautiful passage from Ephesians where it says, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and be very careful how you live, not as unwise but as wise and and what we put into our minds each day really does matter well and, and no lie and, and we did not rehearse this i i download podcasts from faith radio network and from other christian providers and i'd listen to those when i'm on a long drive and i would encourage anyone listen to the scriptures get get an audio podcast that reads the scriptures 
listen to good sermons, but uh, it may not be as easy as concentrating in church, but do your very best to, to feed yourself every morning. And then particularly as that happens, you'll find yourself turning to prayer and your entire mental state will change. You, you realize that God is truly present everywhere in every moment of our lives if we open our eyes to see him. Hmm. Love the conversations, Ben. So good to catch up a bit. Love the way that you do shine that light in the world. However, perfectly and imperfectly on any given day, keep doing what you're doing. And thanks for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, and God bless, Peter. We'll take a short break and wrap up our first hour of the show here for the morning, and we'll preview what's coming up in hour two here for the 19th of September on Mornings with Carmen. Well, great again to be with you this morning here on the 19th of September and just the encouraging journey of continuing to walk out life in the kingdom, however difficult it can be on a given day, however triumphant it could be on a given day. And none of that changes the fact that we are part of a beautiful kingdom that knows no end. And because that tomb is empty, we know that even if we die, we will live. And that is the fundamental and primary and most important promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is nothing in this world that cannot be overcome at the end of the day in the midst of sorrow and turmoil. And certainly that is a topic, uh, Paul Perot, we're going to turn to at the top of next hour uh, in in terms of uh, this idea of sexual abuse and how mm-hmm. rampant it really can be and how difficult that topic is. I know that I run into it more and more and more with my young people. And uh, we're going to talk a bit with author Jennifer Greenberg, who released a book called Not Forsaken. And uh, in the book of uh, Not Forsaken, she she talks a bit about her own journey in this and how difficult it is to come to light and boy you know ben referenced some things just about sex education Mm -hmm. in schools and kind of where we're headed and the confusion and and identity situations and stuff it really is i I think for many families listening today for many people listening today that this is one of those top of the mind topics that i think we need to start getting ahead of a little bit more as a church definitely and that's why um the Southern Baptists have put out or have put out some resources recently, and there's a conference coming up next month to help churches deal with abuse within their own doors because they they've been confronted with that, and there's people within the de- denomination who want to take it head on, and they're inviting others. I, I just put that as an aside because yeah. that's coming up ne- early next month. Uh, check it out. Yeah, so, I, I churchcares.org, I think it is. I love that. And for all of these conversations, we just need to keep having them and keep having them. And So I'd be curious to hear from Jennifer Greenberg again. She's coming up at the top of next hour to talk about her own journey. And if there can be hope and if there can be future in the midst of one of the most difficult realities of sexual abuse, this kingdom must indeed be real. So stay with us here on Mornings of Carmen. More to come on Hour 2. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for the day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.